Mincy Purdue, episode 628, first episode since last Saturday. And actually, fitting enough, the last episode I did was November 20th, and that was episode 627 with Mr. David Hoffman about his book, Billion Dollar Spy, and the CIA asset known as CK Sphere, real name, I believe, Adolf Tolkachev, all about stealing uh, look-down, shoot-down radar and avionic secrets from the Soviets to help the United States, which led to the direct development of uh, the F-15. And um, Mitzi actually expressed some interest in it. But before we start that, Ms. Mitzi Purdue, please introduce yourself. Okay, I'm Mitzi Purdue. I am the author of a new book on Frank Purdue called The Frank Purdue Way. It's a very short book. It's just a whole bunch of tips that only a wife or somebody who spends 24 hours a day with him would know. Attitudes that he had that just make you a winner. And for me, one of the most special things about this book is it's full of tips that anybody could do. So you put them all together and, oh, you can have success beyond your imagination. So the Frank Purdue way available on Amazon. And now, since you have told me that it's okay to monologue, I want to respond to David Hoffman's book and to, and to the conversation there because I'm, I'm a regular fan. I listen, you know, you're, you're, you're my companion, sir. Yeah. But I, I wonder how many of us there are because you're just, how about just the smartest, most innovative, original, fun? I just deal with it, Tommy. You're good. <laughs> okay, so there I am listening to the billion dollar spy, David Hoffman and CK Sphere. Well, somehow as happens quite rarely, it was on a topic that I knew just a teeny tiny itsy tweetsy bit about, and that is the F-35. Now how does sweet little Mitzi know about the F-35? <laughs> I, I could make up such a great story here but instead, I'll do my best to tell the truth. I got to see the uh, the Lockheed Martin, and is it Martin Marietta as well? I'm not quite sure of the name, but for def for sure, Lockheed Martin. I got to see their facility in California, and it's an amazing place. It's oh, it, it's known how big it is, but I I can just say that it looked to me, you know, eyeballing it like. 40 football fields. I mean, just extraordinarily big. It's the sort of thing that if you travel around in it, they have you in a golf cart because you, you can't walk as fast as it would take to go from one end to the other. So huge. And Lockheed Martin, I'm told, employs a quarter of a million people. And the F-35, as far as I can tell, is the, how about the star of, of everything they do? It's a fighter jet, and as you mentioned in your intro, we had such a leg up on designing it because of the billion-dollar man. Well, in your talk, and in David Hoffman's talk, you're speculating about if, if we're spying on them so hard, aren't they spying on us? And, okay, here's where I have some firsthand inside information. Yeah, they do, and we know it. But just the glorious thing I learned on this tour, oh my gosh, they seed the uh, the blueprints and everything else just here and there with 
things that will cause lethal crashes. And we know how to strip them out the last minute. And the Chinese, according to what I was told, they have to build 20 jets for every one that's going to work because 19 of them are going to have a crash. And, you know, as I'm listening to this, and by the way, my information is three years old, so I don't know what the current information is, but I bet it's similar. I was thinking as I'm listening to this about how we seed the, the, the blueprints or whatever else that can be stolen with information that will cause fatal crashes. Is it pretty hard for the Chinese to get test pilots? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I would think that would be quite demotivating. Well, that's that's kind of the beauty of a of a communist dictatorship, though. You don't need volunteers. You just order the next one in. Get in, or you're gonna. I'm, I'm, you're either gonna die from a gunshot wound, or you're gonna die from you know crashing. Get in. But but, but isn't it the coolest thing that? Um, that, that we know that and we have workarounds. And by the way, that's what they would tell publicly. Heaven yeah. knows what they're doing privately. Yeah. And I mean, that in itself might have been a psyop. They tell people going on tour that. So that trickles back down into public consciousness. Who know, Maybe it's one in a hundred. Maybe it's one in two. Like, you know, it's the same author, actually, David Hoffman in his book, Dead Hand, talks about uh, a well-known, uh, I think now declassified thing, I, th I cannot remember the name of the program. It was like Ski Court or, or Underline or something weird, but where we found out the Soviets were basically doing what we were doing with Billion Dollar Spy during the Reagan administration, but they were doing it for things like uh, oil refineries. And yeah, and we found out about it. And instead of clamping down on it, it was, but the thing about it is, is because there are spies in all, all levels of government, and that's just everywhere, they had to keep it really quiet that they knew it was going on. And so they were like, hey, hey, they're like, let's not clamp down on it. And they were like, no, we need to because now the Soviets are, you know, because like what we had over the Soviets was, is like, I think the quote is they could build missiles, but they can't build toasters. So if the Soviets are stealing things like oil refinery technology, that may not seem huge, but no, our strong suit is, is their entire society is always on the brink of collapse and starvation. So we were like, no, you know, they were stealing, stealing agricultural secrets. So what we did is we were like, let's let them steal it. But what they did is they would seed like the software with just like just a couple glitches to the point where one time one of the oil refineries in, in uh, the Soviet Union exploded. It was the largest non-nuclear explosion ever detected from space. It was so large that our nuclear explosion detecting satellites caught it. And it was, there's was like a flash flash message, which I think is the highest priority, beamed down to the White House. And Reagan was brought into the situation room and they're like, what's going on? You know, because at that point they had had nuclear weapon uh, above ground explosions outsourced or outlawed for 20 years to the point where the CIA director had to come in and was like, hey, 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 no. It's fine. It's that's perfect. We want that. But that's how closely guarded it was, because if someone else in the government found out that they were seeding it, well, then the whole thing would. It's this kind of one upmanship. And I know I told you before we started recording, don't apologize for monologuing. And I just monologued. But that is a huge thing. Well, I, OK, how about there are two monologuers together? Yes. yes. <laughs> but I, I, I remember I was a government major in college. And the, the professor, he, came, he was a defector from the former Soviet Union. And he said you know, that there was just an exquisite 
balance between their ability to spy and our getting defectors, yeah. except that our defectors cost us a lot less than their spying. Yeah, it's um, David Hoffman said, I mean, because we did have, you know, we did have traitors in the U.S. government. We had Kim Philby, right, who was good friends with James G. Singleton, the head of counterintelligence, which is is stopping. If the analogy I heard is, if intelligence is going to score a touchdown, counterintelligence is defense. You're just stopping them from stealing your stuff. Um, we had a couple. Kim Philby was one. And then the other, I think it was uh, Aldrich Ames who sold oh, out. Yeah. I think that actually is what led to the catching of CK Sphere. Aldrich Ames sold out a ton of people. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, and led to his execution. Uh, and then who's the Hanson? I can't remember. It's Brian or Byron Hanson who was caught in the 90s or the 80s. He was selling stuff from the FBI, and that wasn't even ideological. He was just getting paychecks. And he is. He is still alive and he's rotting in prison in ADX Florence. Um, but I mean, the thing is, is like you can kind of name our defectors. Like you can kind of name them. That's how few there are. And they're by all means detrimental. But David Hoffman says is it's kind of the hidden hand, you know, the hidden hand of the free market. It's like, how did people know to create Uber? And it's like, well, there was no top down. It was just this need for this thing. He says there is a hidden hand in the Soviet Union where they're not they can try to stop the big level defectors. But when you torture people, when you kidnap people's parents, when your wife's father was executed 30 years ago, you have all these little kind of splinters in the brains of your citizens that every single one of them is really. And what CK Sphere said is he wanted some money. But when asked about it, he just, he's like, I just hate the Soviet Union. They killed my wife's parents. They tortured my parents. And he didn't care. And when, when the CIA station chief would say to him, like, this is dangerous, he would say, everything I'm doing is dangerous. And like, I don't I don't care. And so, yeah, like their defect, although we have ours, that's always the thing is, is there is a hidden, a, a communist, the very, you know, Chinese test pilots. We say that because we're projecting as Americans. We're like, why would we get in there? We value human life. And then Chinese, it's no, get in there. Or we're going to shoot you. That very dynamic is what leads to much greater numbers of defectors to us, at least in my opinion. I think it's hard for Americans or maybe even Westerners to grasp the difference that, of value that human life has. Because I, I think of the Uyghurs in, in China Organ harvesting, it's, I'm, I'm told it's a billion dollar industry. And I've, for all I know, I heard it in one of your podcasts, but I'm thinking of a, of a story I heard of the guy who needed a liver transplant. He went to, to China being told that there wasn't a long wait list. Well, something like eight of the livers failed, but he kept being able to get a fresh one each time until finally one took. But you know, his conclusion is somebody died to give me that liver. Because yeah. there's there's no way that they could have them fresh and available at a moment's notice on that scale. Yeah, and if and if they were leading the world in in economical like organ regeneration, which is still on like bleeding edge kind of sci-fi in 2021, like it's possible in the same way that like a cell phone in the 60s was probably possible. Well, I, like, well, there was like JFK's Secretary of Defense 
he did have a cell phone. He had a government issued cell phone in his limo, and that was in '61. But it was very. But the point is, is yeah, it's it's which ones you know, Occam's razor. Which one's more probable that China has uh, cornered the market on uh, organ regeneration and they're keeping that propaganda win quiet? Or the country with 1.3 billion people and zero value on human lives is just, you know, you could probably hear the muffled gunshots every time they found out one of the organs was failing. Get the next one. Yeah, it's, 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 you can't really compare the two. Sorry, I know I keep monologuing. No, 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 I love it. I love it. I love it. Because remember, I'm the one who tunes into you. So monologue away. Uh, But, but now I'm thinking of, for, between 2007 and 2017, I used to visit China every year. I I made friends with a family, and the patriarch of it used to invite his family and me to travel around China. Woo-hoo! I mean, coolest thing in the world. But one of the things that just made my blood run cold was it was so obvious in so many cases that, that human life meant nothing. And like one that just sticks in my mind, we were talking about the Cultural Revolution. And between famine and social disruption, between those two, it I mean, who knows how many people died, but it could be in the range of, all right, give a guess. I'm thinking 40 million. Probably 100. All right, how, how about unknown, but millions and millions and millions. And my friend, uh, I'm going to make up a name to protect the guilty, but we will call him Peter, which, trust me, is not his name. He has a Chinese name. Uh, but Peter was just so cavalier about it. He said, well, that was the, the, that was the price that we paid for being a unified country. If, if we hadn't, if all these people weren't dead, it would be a much more divided country. And I'm thinking... We as Western as Westerners, just it's that's difficult to process because you think, you know, one person dies, the grief, the sorrow, the the loss, forty million, what? And which makes me think of a quote that's supposed to have come from Stalin, and I believe it did come from Stalin. One death, one death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. Yeah, I mean. I mean, in the U.S. is right, and it's only here. And I don't say this sarcastically. Like, I mean, it is a it is a good thing. Maybe I don't agree with the 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 violent mob, but I do agree with the outrage over you know the the killing of George Floyd, summer twenty twenty. Only here, right? Or the fact that people still talk about Ashley Babbitt being shot on January sixth. It's only here that. These cases of governmental force killing citizens makes the news and results in riots as opposed to just what happened to grandpa? He, he's gone. Don't don't ask any questions or you're going to be gone, too. It, it's a completely different which I mean, all the more just makes me hate when people are like America's a dictatorship. And it's like, dude, it it. No, like this shit happens every day there. And if you question it, it happens to you, too. And it is kind of like the gradient. I always think about like like differential gradients in cells. When there's more ions on this side of the cell wall, they they, they flow in. It's just it balances out like you know, like a seesaw. The gradient is like the United States border. What other nation 
do people risk life and limb to get over the border into? They risk life and limb to get over the border out of their nation and into ours. But going down a rabbit hole at that, the other thing, back to the F-35 and for, I'm sure there's some stickler listening to this. Neither Mitzi or I are, are entirely sure if we're talking about the F-35 or the F-22. It's one of them. But they're the, the, most, the two most advanced fighter jets in the United States arsenal. Another thing you asked about was, uh, was EMP shielding. And you said that they had taken that in consideration. Yeah. Um, since I read books on, on EMPs and I, and I have friends who specialize in this, I was just so curious, you know, how defended are is this great big giant factory against EMPs. And in the end, I felt really foolish for even asking because of course they look into those things. Yeah. The Like the jets themselves are, if I heard this right, like 50 times over immune. And there might be some, I don't know, sanitation area of, of, of the facility that's not protected. But the things that matter, of course they are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, early on, they figured out how to protect Air Force One from EMP it has EMP shielding. You can only imagine that they've that that technology has progressed. Like, why wouldn't you, you don't build two billion dollar stealth bomber like the B two and not have because an EMP is, I mean, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a bioweapon in that it levels the playing field. You don't necessarily need a a hypersonic stealth autonomous cruise missile that costs you know this much money. EMP is kind of like releasing smallpox. It's it's kind of the poor man's you know like. 9-11, it, was, it wasn't some advanced weapon. It was box cutters and airliners. An EMP is, I mean, you, you detonate it over an area of the United States and you knock out all power sources. You, you, everything is dead. And not dead in that you have to turn it back on, dead in that it's dead. This computer, this camera, it's all done. Yeah, that's one thing I've thought is, like, of course they would learn to have sh- uh, shielded that by now. Um, the other kind of thing I was thinking about with, with Billion Dollar Spy in regards to what you were saying with seeding them with false information is this sort of it's like the premise of billion dollar spy is that we stole all this information about the mig-29 and because of that we could then build our next generation fighter hyper specified to i mean kind of like an antibody right it could fight that it was specifically designed it wasn't just throw everything at the wall it was we knew exactly what we needed to make it super lethal you got to think the inverse, if the Chinese were spying on us to build a fighter jet that was hyper-specific to fight ours, you could not only seed it with with information that would lead to fatal crashes, right? Because they're going to catch on eventually, just like the Soviets caught on with us blowing up the refineries. They were like, hey, stop stealing this stuff. It's all shit. What if you didn't seed it with fatal information? You just it's useless information or, well, or not even mis- not even you let them you let them steal the information. Let them build something that is hyper specified to fight the F-35. But by them having built something, you know, if I give you a puzzle piece with an opening, I know for a fact that your puzzle piece is going to be the one with a protrusion. So instead of giving them shit that's going to make their planes crash, just give them any information. You know that they only have one other option, and it's to build the thing. And if you now know what exactly they're building, 
then you've just got a hundred times more information than CK Sphere could deliver. You have basically forced their hand. You've said, I know you're going to build this puzzle piece. And then you can build something that is a hundred times more effective. So it's like the ultimate bait and switch, right? It's like, yeah, it's like if, I, if I'm, I'm giving you, I'm letting you know that I have vodka and you're like, all right, we're going to mix this with cranberry juice or something. I know for a fact that there's only a handful of things you're going to mix this with cranberry juice or orange juice or whatever. And now I can build something that I know is going to specifically spoil your acidic drink. I'm going to be like, they have to use whatever's mixed with vodka. So we're just going to, you know, we're going to hit it with milk. We're going to fuck up Mitzi's drink. Does that make sense? Like you, you could really go well, full it, judo on it. Well, it reminds me of this wonderful story I heard recently. There was this guy, he was a student. He was noticing that to get into grad school, he was getting 95s. And then some people were cheating on the exams. <laughs> Tell that story, because isn't that the same thing? Very long story short, yeah. Uh, I was, no, make it long. Uh, I love that story. Yeah. I mean, I want you in charge of the and, CIA, and, CIA after uh, hearing I, that I, story. I, I wish. In organic chemistry in college, I was studying nonstop around the clock to get A's in the classes. And I was getting like 90s and 95s. And some other students were also getting 95s and like 90% of the 300 person class was getting like 50s. And that didn't really matter to me because in with medical schools, they didn't just look at the grades you got. They also looked at what was the average grade of the class. If you get an A, but it's bowling, well, that A doesn't really matter on a med school resume. They're like, everyone got an A. Or if it's OCHEM, but they find out, hey, everyone in this class got an A. This isn't the traditional OCHEM class. Normally, OCHEM class is a, is, a, is a weed out class, but maybe this college just has an easy class. So they want to see what your standing was amongst all other students. And I was getting like 90s to 95s, and a couple other students were as well. And because of that, there, there was still like a huge curve on the class. And I didn't like that because I knew I was studying around the clock. And the couple of, so I befriended the, the guy, like a sociopath, I befriended the guys I knew, right? And I, That's I, my tummy. Yeah, I'd been in a fraternity, so I kind of, you know, I knew them and I could kind of read them. And I knew just like really all fraternities at all colleges, they all have old like test banks and stuff. Like they kind of, it's like the family secrets, you pass it down, you know, and it's, you have the answers to tests and stuff. And so these kids weren't learning OCHEM, they were just memorizing the exact answer. Which, hey, you know, I'll, fine, I'll, I'll respect a, a cheater. You know, you find the easiest path to get an A. But that really pissed me off because I was like, I had to study around the clock to get these. And now I got the tests from them. I befriended them. I forget, maybe I traded them something, but I got the tests. And uh, what I could have done is just stop studying now because I had the test. I could have just memorized the answers. But I was like, why do that when I could like, when I could take it all? Like, why get... Why get a 90, you know, why, why get a million dollars when I could get a billion? And I was, so what I did is I scanned all the tests and I anonymously uploaded them onto the student forums. And so everyone got the answers and I only did it like a day or two before the test. I like, I had them for like a month and I put them out like a day or two before the test. Cause if I uploaded them and the professor found out these kids would have a chance to study up or maybe they could find other tests, you know, because sometimes the professor will cycle through just a certain number of tests for one exam, right? So it's, so what I did is I waited until the last possible moment, uploaded them, which 
anyone you wouldn't upload it on the actual like uga school forum like that's 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 retarded no like you if someone really wanted it but i purposely put it out there so it made all the rounds you know the ta saw it and they were like hey here's the they told the professor now the professor has to cover his ass because if now if his higher-ups find out hey man there are circulating tests it looks bad on the school so i forced the professor's hand to create all new tests the kids that were getting 95s now got, I mean, literally got started getting like fives and tens on their tests. <laughs> the students ha- who had been studying all along and getting 50s were still getting 50s because they just understood about half organic chemistry. But I understood 95% of it. So I started getting the only 95 in the class. And so there was this enormous outlier effect of where I was, it wasn't a grouping, it was just one person. And I did that for all four tests that semester right before (laughs) I would just spike them and and I did it specifically because if you're not in like a 10 person class you have to know the you know if I wanted a letter recommendation from Mitzi Purdue like you're going to give me like a very specific one right versus if I want a letter of recommendation from like the mayor of my town they have like a template and med schools aren't stupid they look at it and they can tell when it's a template so if you're in a 300 person class and you go get a letter of recommendation from the professor, it's going to be one that med schools kind of disregard, just like they disregard the A and PE. They also disregard the template ones because they're like this, the, the, the professor just stamps them out. So what I did is by being the only outlier and I turned the whole semester into just, I mean, it was a pain in the ass for everyone. The professor had to make new tests. Like half the class ended up dropping the class. And so they had to take it again the next semester. I think some students didn't graduate because of that. So they had to go back and take another semester of tuition, which is there was a lot of collateral damage. But (laughs) I made sure that the professor understood that like this semester was weird. And one kid, despite him changing all the tests, was still getting near perfect scores. I think I got a 99 in the class. So when I went into him at the end of the semester and said, can you write me a letter of recommendation? He was like, I can give you one of the template ones, but I mean, we all know they're worthless. And I was like, I got an A in your class. And I vividly remember, I can still see it in my mind's eye. I remember him looking up from his desk and going like, what's your student ID? And I gave it to him. And he goes, oh, that's you. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, yeah. I mean, so he wrote me this long, extensive letter about how I was the only one who got an A and how he'd never had that happen before. And when I got into medical school, that was one of the things they talked about was he was like, yeah, you have this letter from like Professor Hubbard, like because, again, they get all the letters recommendation. They're like bullshit, bullshit. You know, that one's from your friend's dad, who's a surgeon, like eh, blah, blah, blah. They found this one and they were like. So that literally helped me get into medical school. So. It's the long-term win. It was worth all of that as opposed to me just brute forcing it and then wringing my hands at these other frat guys getting A's. You can only imagine that that's happening at the highest levels. Like, hey, let them think they're stealing the planes. And then what would it be? At the last minute before the test, we change the exams? At the last minute, what's the test? It's conflict. So our F-35s go up. The Chinese are like, we've been building this secret plane, the the F-36, and it's here to kick the shit out of your F-35s. And at the last second, we flipped out the exams. And we're like, no, here's the X, here's the X-31. And they're like, the what, the what? And it's like, 
It's like here, here's Tommy actually understanding. Here's the 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 T seventy two, and they're like, whoa, 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 what is that? What is it? By by then, too late. Time for the exam. You failed. You got to drop out. Semester's over. Your country collapses. We win. And if they're not doing that, then I should be in charge of the CIA. <laughs> That's the well, story. Well, first of all, I, 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 I want, oh, this is so presumptuous of me to say, but here goes. I mean, being presumptuous never stops me. But it seems to me that you would just make, with your background and the amount that you read, the number of people you speak with, First of all, uh, if it were up to me, I would, I would grant you from Purdue University, uh, which doesn't really exist, uh, or at least my university doesn't really exist. But I, I would give you the Mitzi Purdue University doctorate in military strategy. Now, go get a job with, with the Department of Defense. I nothing would make me happier than if I would just get contacted one day and they're like, "We want you to come," you know join like a think tank or something that would be that would be like the happiest day ever it's like the podcast is fun and i love making the podcast grow there would be nothing more to me that would be like the biggest that would be the ultimate podcast guest would be the guest that i can't talk about like i get to go to the pentagon you can tell when i get jacked up because my it's it's the barometer my face gets all red i start screaming about cia (laughs) and med school it's but you gotta you gotta wonder like why if why you would have to do that because that's the only way you can like again you can get the 95 which is fine you get an a in the class yay or but it's not enough or you can get the 99 that leads to a letter of recommendation that leads to you getting into med school and that letter of recommendation probably outweighed 12 16 other classes of a's so you know four semesters of four classes each semester all of that was weighed into just kind of one tactical move. So now it didn't matter that, you know, I, you know, dropped out of calculus three times. Now it doesn't matter that I ended up getting a B in genetics. Now it doesn't matter that I failed this or did this. Like it was kind of that one O-chem's the weed out class. And I was like, I just need to get the gold trophy for this. And then the rest is like, whatever, you know, make sure you still pass the other classes. So why wouldn't that happen on a, if it happened with me, with no military education, getting into medical school, why wouldn't that happen at the, the rarefied air of the heads of not corporations, but nations vying for not getting into medical school where some people get in, but rather global hegemony. I mean, it is the most tippy top, tippy top I got into Miami Medical School, 15,000 apply, I think 150 got in. This is smaller than that. This is one gets in. One, there is one global superpower. You can only- The highest stakes that exist. It's, it's, yeah. The cold, we, we all know about the Cold War specifically because it was that weird time when there was two, right? It's the highest stakes. It is beyond the gold medal. You can get a gold medal at the Olympics- or you can get the gold medal and set the world record. You know, there's just this, you can get a Super Bowl ring or you can be Tom Brady and get and get the most out of anyone. It's, and it's not just a, a ring or a trophy. It's global, it's global superpower. And the, the, the loser often ends up getting eradicated. Why are they not doing this? Well, okay, then here comes the theory. Okay. It comes from... 
have a master's in public administration. And one of the things that we studied that I found fascinating was that in all sorts of hierarchies, but particularly the military, the higher, in fact, let's stick with the military for the moment because there's a wealth of studies on this. The higher your rank, the higher your IQ. It's, it's almost invariable that it's, it's a really good way of, I mean, you, you, you get your promotion, but then it happens that you're smarter than the people who didn't and you get promoted higher, you're smarter than the people who didn't. So I'm, I'm so ready to bet that by the time you're at the top of the pyramid, like in the military, that you're one really smart person. And, and part of smarts is having a lot of ability to use different skills to, to get where you want. And how about deception and the art of war? You've studied it. There's no chance that you haven't. I think I've, I think I've read like a chapter of the art of war. I know I need to. I'd probably enjoy it. Oh, you'll love it. You'll probably love it. Should. Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, now some people say that uh, are we getting too political no. that Trump that Trump didn't read? But the fact is, uh, I'm aware of hundreds of books that he read, but something like number two was The Art of War. Yeah. Number one, which I don't understand, was um, All Quiet in the Western Front, which is an anti-war book. That, that was his number one recommendation. Nice. But then others others in, were like Walden or or... Kissinger's China. But but I, I brought all that up just to say that the art of war is something that uh, Trump studied. But that's weird. All Quiet on the Western Front for, for a long time was my favorite book. You're yeah. kidding. Tell me yeah. why. Because to me, it was just a puzzle that, that somebody... It was, is, read, is there more to it than Andy War? I remember it from high school. And I think the thing that stuck out to me was... You know, I haven't read The Art of War, but just from everything we're talking about, all this kind of deception and maneuvering. The thing about All Quiet on the Western Front is what I remember taking away is it really all boiled down to he concluded that it was just chance. Like, there's all sort of strategic, you know, everything I did to get into medical school, that whole moving this and moving this and getting this. You could say that's the art of war. You could say, well, what's above the art of war? And that was... On any day of that semester, I could have had an aneurysm and just dropped dead and none of it mattered. And that's kind of, that's what I would imagine. He th it's all quiet on the Western Front is like, you can have all this stuff and then you just get hit by an artillery shell. <laughs> it's just, and it's, so there's this weird, like, who knows, maybe that gives you courage because it's like, you know, don't try to save, don't try to save everything for tomorrow because there's probably no tomorrow. And just like understand that, that. You just kind of go all in knowing that like, yeah, man, if it might end and it might end just won't even be something that you can fight against. It will be stepping on a landmine like 10 years after the war ended that. But it's been 15 years since I read All Quiet on the Western Front. But that's like what I remember is just ultimately it was just all chance. Who knows? Well, I read it um, and I'm going to guess, good Lord, it could have been 50 years ago. Maybe it was 60 years ago, I being 80 and proud of it. But what I remember was, yeah, we studied it. And what, what I remember the teacher talking about it 
was that this was one of the first books that really had sympathy and understanding for the actual soldier as opposed to the generals. Mm-hmm. So it was it was sort of a much more humane book. Yeah. It and and that its anti-warness came from you saw the suffering just of the foot soldier or the equivalent of metaphorically speaking, the man in the street. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I don't know why it's Trump's number one book. It, it might be what you say, the uh, just the chance of stuff, or what about it has tremendous sympathy for metaphorically the man in the street, the, just the, the average Joe, not, not the general or the, or the Duke or whatever. Yeah. I'm trying to think, like one of the things I remember most about it is like he he like went home at one point. He actually served like two tours. And so he actually like went home and he remembers seeing these old these like old kind of like retired generals like playing checkers in the park or something or chess or whatever. And I mean they were from, you know, eighteen sixties and seventies because they were old during nineteen seventeen. And they were talking about, and he remembers like overhearing them and they were talking about like, you know, we should drive them out of here and then we can take this patch of land. It'd be great to expand Prussia. And if we did this, well, then I'll say it's Lorraine. And, and they were just, and he remembers looking at it and he was like, they're playing this like a game of chess. And he was like, but I just got back from this front where I was watching people get burned alive from flamethrowers and shrapnel, you know splinters go through their head and you know guys walking around with their eyes hanging out calling out for their moms like and he was like i just came back from that and these guys were playing checkers i mean that you could maybe tie it into the art of war you could say you know none of the strategy matters so long as you make the other side society so terrible that the generals can have all these strategies, but eventually the man on the street or in the trench is going to go, I'm going the way where there is no, no, no more of this. So, you know, you could have maybe the equivalent would be guys in China who are like, if we can do this and we have the hundred year plan here and we can do this. And your, your equivalent would be a guy be like, dude, the secret police just like executed my parents. Like screw you. I'm going to America. Like screw y'all. Like, I don't want to play your game. It might be something like, I don't know, maybe he just likes it because it's above all of the nothing, you know, we're talking about now America versus China. And then what if the sun explodes tomorrow? <laughs> it's like, it means, means nothing. Well, actually, speaking of things that could happen tomorrow, uh, how about, I'll pronounce it wrong, but Omicron? Oh, jeez. Yeah, the Omicron variant, which... Viruses get more virulent as they evolve and they get less lethal. That's what they do. So it's except have have you seen uh, have have you seen a description of like the genetics of of this new variant? Uh, I recommend that everybody take a look at Chris Martinson, peakprosperity.com. Chris Martinson is it's Dr. Chris Martinson and his specialty is pathology. And within that, he seems to know one heck of a lot about genetics. And he has this, it's a graphic, which I'll try to describe, but imagine like the first seven or eight variants, they have like one or two mutations and that you can see what what one grew out from another. And it's just sort of all very evolutionary and organic. 
And then there's the micron with its, I don't know, does it have 20 mutations, 30 mutations? I think it's the new one has 32. 32, that sounds right. Uh, and I'm still suffering over whether it was the F-36 or the F-35. 35, F-20, it's all fighter jets. Well, okay, we know what I'm talking about even if I, I'm directionally correct. Okay, let's go back to 32 mutations. This guy who's a pathologist who knows in, insane amounts about genetics, because I guess if you have a doctorate in pathology, you know an awful lot about pathogens and how they evolve. And he said, I mean, I hope I'm quoting him correctly. But I, I do believe I'm quoting the, the graphic correctly. You see on the bottom axis, axis, you can see that it's just very clear where Delta comes in, where, yeah, where the different ones, one or two. And then a complete anomaly, kind of hockey stick kind of thing. You see Omicron with, with 32 mutations. And his suspicion is that that can't possibly have been natural. evolved, that, that it, it takes doing to have so many all at once with no predecessor. That That's kind of my, my hunch feeling is like, do, do we have any, how do we know that this is, how do you not know it's just some other thing released from a lab in Wuhan? And they're like, oh, it's Omicron. Really? I mean, well, uh, I, I once audited at, at, at Salisbury University, a course on terrorism. And one of the things that they asked you to do, if you're taking this course, actually, the, almost the biggest premise of it, premise of it, as far as I can tell, is to think like a terrorist. Very enlightening thing to do. And it's, it's switched my thinking forevermore. And so I'm thinking, imagine that I'm Chairman Xi. And I'm up against a whole lot of really serious problems. Uh, they, I've got financial problems on a scale that is just almost inconceivable. Evergrande, $300 billion. How about that's, that's approaching the cost of national defense for the United States? I mean, it's just, it, it's not the same, but it's just a scale that's just unthinkable. And it's going bankrupt, but that's just one of probably hundreds of other real estate companies, which is somewhere around 29% of the GDP of the whole country. He's up against floods that are in some areas, it's one in a thousand year floods. He's up against um, crop failures because of the flooding or because of locusts. He's up against uh, large numbers of countries that are really mad at him right now because uh, with his Belt and Road Initiative, he started things that he's not finishing because he's not had the money to do it. He's he's got you know, loads of people who are really unhappy for reasons that you've described. Where you know you execute somebody's brother, they're not going to feel warm and fuzzy towards you. He's so between economically, food security, military security, he's up against a really bad place. What would I do if? having taken or audited some of the security classes, some of the terrorism classes, what would I do? I think to protect my own self, and given that if I'm Chairman Xi, I don't think human life matters as much as it might to a Westerner, I think I'd unleash 
something else from the Wuhan lab- laboratory. I mean, I've got them and I'm desperate. Yeah, they're cheap. They're not nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapon, there's no, it's suicide. It's the, it's the, but, but this, I, I, I think I've got some nice plausible deniability. Absolutely. Oh, it, it started in Africa. It's the Botswana variant. Yeah, it's, yeah, 100%. It's, I, I, that I've just revealed that I'm a tinfoil hat person. No, it's, 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 you know, when, when people say do your due diligence with electronics, they're like, oh, that's a smart guy. You don't just buy the newest Apple thing. You find the one you want, compare it to others. Do I want this or Sony or Apple? Or when it comes to car, when it comes to dating, you know, or you, do you marry the first like girl you make eye contact with in kindergarten? Or like, do you scope out the field, learn more about yourself and see which relationship works? With all these other things, we always call it, oh, that's due diligence or that's that's an experienced guy. That's But when it comes to questioning narratives, which we said earlier, the highest stakes there are, uh, uh, global hegemony, all of a sudden it goes from, oh, there's a critical thinker to oh tinfoil hat there's this just with everything else which phone did you buy which battery did you which microphone did you choose why did you choose it well there's money and there's value and there's quality but when it comes to questioning who's being in charge of the planet in the same kind of you say the names in the same breath as genghis khan and alexander the great the highest stakes there are you're a tinfoil hat thinker, Mitzi. <laughs> what? Well, come to think of what? it, I'm, I'm going. I'm going to take away my tinfoil hat uh, self description because I didn't say this is true. I'm just saying that if I were him, this would be an option I'd explore. Well, well that's well, what I'm saying. Is, is no, no, no. You don't have to say it's true. You just you're just examining. I'm questioning it. Yeah. I mean, is it just a variant? Maybe. Who's benefiting from this? Is it something else? You know what is going on and it's i mean i'm sure there was some guy that worked at that russian plane factory who was like his friends probably called him a tinfoil hat guy he's like dude fuck fucking tolkachev man i swear to god i think he's got a camera inside of his pen and he's taking pictures of it so that the cia can give it to the u.s air force so that if war ever breaks out their plane could preemptively take down our plane they looked at him and they're like "Uh uh-huh yeah, his pen has has a camera, so they can. St- All right, buddy, that's exactly what was happening. That was exactly what was happening. I I don't think there's anything absurd about questioning. Maybe it is just a variation. I don't know. I'm I'm not a molecular biologist. I have no idea. On the other hand, I invite everyone who's listening to go to Peak Prosperity, and. Let's see, today is the 27th of November. Mm-hmm. So look for peak, peak prosperity and the, I mean, if, if, I'm not sure quite how you do it, but look for the, the blog that was posted today and you'll see an extraordinary graphic. And again, to repeat, that graphic shows a hockey stick. As a, all the others are just sort of a nice, all the other variants are just sort of a nice, very gentle slope where you know that you know it's one mutation that made the delta it's one that that made the lambda it's and then suddenly this hockey stick that almost leaves the page where there are 32 it's it's it the dr chris martinson the pathologist said this can't happen on its own and by the way to use a little bit of logic here, 
when somebody has the means, and we know that's what the Wuhan Institute of Virology does, it studies gain of function, and they have the motivation. They've got means, they've got motivation. Motivation, by the way, uh, to keep China above water. They're, I mean, with the amount of problems that they have that are existential, I think they've got like five, each one of them, which could do them in. They've got to do something desperate. So they've got the, the means, they've got the motivation, and uh, I don't think they've got a moral constraint that would keep them from it. Or we released it so that people like you and I would come to the conclusion that it was a desperate China and it's just going to rile up public support for an eventual war with China. Except that, okay, more. If you really want to get, so, her to get up to the no, high. I'm, I'm, I'm totally into that. Except if, if it, what, what we don't know at this moment is, I think we know that it's probably more transmissive. We don't know if any of those 32 mutations cause more harm. I mean, I think we could probably safely guess that quite a few are indifferent, but it just takes one to be more lethal. Uh, if if that happens, and we don't know that yet, but if, if it is more dangerous, not because of its, its transmissibility, but because of its lethality, good God, what that's going to do to the economy of the world. I mean, I bet you're more aware than I am that... There's so many, there's so many businesses that are sort of hanging on to by their fingernails. <clears throat> They're just, you know, in just a world of trouble. And what happens if there's another lockdown? And if there's another lockdown, what does that do to the supply chain? I mean, I, I can see dominoes on a scale that if I were Chairman Xi, I'd be delighted. On the other hand, if I'm Joe Biden, I don't think I'd be delighted. Yeah, it's kind of the you're losing the game, so just you're losing monopoly, so just flip the table. Yeah. Like and that's kinda of, that was always the problem with like you know, nuclear weapons during the Cold War is like you want to beat the other guy, but you also don't want to put them in a state of desperate Hitler was desperate. He didn't have nuclear weapons. You know, that's kind of the danger with China now is you don't want to put them in a desperate. You want to beat them, but you kind of want to beat them like 80 percent. You don't want to you don't want to go all in. You know, we wanted to demolish Japan. We wanted to beat them 100. They wanted the Tommy Ochem test. They're like, we're not just pushing them back. We're going to nuke them. No one else had nukes, though. And that's kind of the whole board game with with nuclear weapons. It's like you don't don't make them desperate. You know, if you're if you're. If you're like rolling like a plastic bag or something, all the air goes to one end. Like you want to make sure there's an outlet for it. You don't want it to explode. And you could say that now it's not just nuclear weapons, but also bioweapons. You don't want to you don't want to push them completely off the map because then they're just going to go, you know, screw it. No one can play. And you release something that's just super lethal. But that that makes my mind jump to something else of why I'm all completely wrong about Chairman Xi. Unless they've got some kind of vaccine for this thing, it's going to hurt, hurt them too. Yeah, I mean... So scratch that theory. Well, not 100%, because 
I mean, Hitler didn't have nukes, but he did do the Nero decree. And granted, his people didn't follow through with it, but his like last order was, it wasn't just scorched earth. It was burn everything. It was destroy all of our factories, tear up our roads, shut down the lights, break everything, you know, collapse the steel mills. No one can win. And people didn't follow through with it because they're like, this is just suicide. Now, if he had a nuke, he could have just pressed a button. But this required the consent of other people who obviously didn't do it. But his final thing was, is it wasn't about Germany winning. It was about everyone losing. Japan wanted to do that with Unit 731. They didn't necessarily think they could beat the United States, but they did want to pull everything down with it. What was Unit 731? Unit 731 was the Japanese... 731? Yeah, it was the Japanese... uh, bioweapon program in World War II, which is they kind of made the Nazis look like Boy Scouts, the things they were doing with uh, on uh, Manchurian prisoners of war and United States prisoners of war. They were going to create like, they were getting the most virulent strains of smallpox and Ebola, putting them in rats, and then they were going to get the germs, put them in artillery shells and use it against the United States if we ever invaded, and out, knowing that it would spread throughout the whole world and kill everyone. But we went in there and surprise, we we took the best of them and brought them over to the United States and had them join our bioweapons program to fight the Soviets. But that was their plan was just we're not it's not that we're going to win. It's just that everyone's going to lose. So it's it, it might not be to go with China wouldn't do it because it might hurt them. That's not always the the mindset is like it might not be about you know, we're going to win. Nuclear war would have hurt the Soviets too, but they might not care. Like you can't, you don't want to bank on them. What happens if North Korea gets a whole arsenal of functional nuclear weapons? Well, they're not going to launch them because it's suicide. They might not care. They might go, you guys have quarantined us and embargoed us and screwed us over. Now no one can play. I'm taking the ball and going home. That is like a thing. It's like they might... It, you, you, their goals might not be that just like we can't understand their lack of value of human life we also might not understand their end goals their end goals might not be we look at it as well then there's no world to rule over that might not be their mindset they might go you know what did you say earlier how do you get the test pilot in there well in communist china you put a gun to his head and say get in there we look at it as why would you release this this hurts you too they might say yeah you know, it, it might, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, that, then that brings me to another thought. And again, I think I heard it from, from one of your guests, but ethno-bioweapons? Yeah. Well, I mean, what if what if this 32 mutation thing hits some ethnicities and not others? Yeah. OMG. Yeah. Yeah, it's bioweapons against specific sequences that are found in specific races. But that's also... Aren't we cheery? Aren't we cheery? But that's also the downside of the... Aside from being demonic, is the downside of those is there's also a direct fingerprint on those. Like launching... The whole lure of bioweapons is you can just release it into the wild and it's you, it's not like a nuclear weapon launch where you can follow the plume back to China and go, well, it came from you guys. If you made a bioweapon that only attacked one group of people, you can kind of narrow it down into who did it, which would then lead to a retaliatory strike. So it's almost just as suicidal if you made it 
only affect non-Chinese people, unless they were just doing it one by one. You release an African variant, then you release a Mexican variant, then you release a European, and then finally a North American. I don't know. But back to what you you were saying earlier about supply chain and tiny business. I mean, that's the, and I don't entirely buy into it because it's anytime a, a conspiracy gets too grand and too, you know, all seeing, I tend to think it's, it's going to break down. Someone's going to mess it up. There's competing factions, but that's the whole idea behind the great reset is that you release these things, destroy small businesses. So the only ones that survive are Amazon, Walmart, whatever. And just like we only have a handful of social media giants, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Snapchat, Reddit, it's very easy to control them when there's only five, when you can just get five people in a room and let's say you're the U.S. government and you go, hey, censor this, and you only have to keep five people quiet and you can affect what 7 billion people see. Well, if you can reduce every mom and pop store to just two or three corporations, well, then you can go, hey, and uh, if you don't have a vaccine, you can't shop. Or, hey, you've been accused of hate speech. Tommy, you've been, a, you've been accused from hate speech. In 2021, it's I get banned from YouTube. In 2031, it might be you You can no longer shop at the produce aisle or you no longer allowed to buy protein. You can still buy crackers, but, you know, you get one more strike and you can't buy crackers anymore. And, uh, hey, oh, you've done this. You've lost your power credits for the month. No more electricity. That's the whole idea behind the Great Reset is if you consolidate everything to just a handful of mega corporations. You, you can just take the governmental hand and put it in the puppet a lot easier. Now, I don't know if that's the case or if that's just what seems to be happening. I have no idea, Mitzi. I have absolutely but no that idea. Ma- that immediately makes my little mind go to Albert Einstein. Why Albert Einstein? Because there's a fabulous uh, series. I, it may be 12, 12 hours on Amazon Prime, telling about the life of Einstein. And I've only watched the first uh, the first one of however many it is, and I do think it's twelve. But it it tells part of the part of the hour that I watched includes what led up to his leaving Germany. Yeah, you know, where, where he was, you know, he was a big deal. He was a beloved professor at Heidelberg, and what made him leave. And it actually took him 10 years to decide to leave. His wife, you know, at the beginning of the 10 years, when one of his best friends were, was murdered for being Jewish, and his wife wanted to leave. She said, you know, the handwriting's on the wall. And he said, no, no, no. And then that just over 10 years, the attacks on Jews increased, and there were... There were a group called the Brown Shirts, which remind me so much of Antifa. I hardly know what to do with myself, but they were state-sanctioned violence that would go around wrecking Jewish stores. Sort of like Antifa goes around, almost encouraged by some, to go wreck small businesses. But what fascinated me almost the most about, about this series, and again, I recommend it to everybody, I think it's called something like Seasons of Einstein, but just look for an Einstein video on Prime and, and you'll come to it. What fascinated me most was, you know, in hindsight, 
there's so many signs that say, get out, get out, get out now. But he didn't want to see it. His mind just wouldn't process the notion that it was getting so bad. Yeah. I mean, that's wrong. You, you always look back and you're like, why do people not flee? A well, that, that did. Well, I mean, he did finally, and, and a lot didn't, but but you could so see that, you know, he's loyal to his students, he's loyal to his university, he just can't believe this thing is happening. He just can't believe it. And then finally he did. And I kind of feel, you know, what if we're like that right now? We just can't believe the things that maybe a few years from now will look obvious. So what did Einstein do when he finally realized? He applied to go to the United States. And at the at the very end of the first section, which is what I watched last night, suddenly his, his boat sails the next day and he's called into the American embassy and he's being interviewed by somebody who says that FBI Director Hoover wanted to know how much of a radical he was and if he answered the questions to the approval of J. Edgar Hoover, uh, he'd, be, he'd get his visa and could sail the next day. And I've got to quick tune in tonight to see what happens next. But so so he, he finally realized and fled to the United States. Well, we know that he did get to the United States. Um, I don't know what happened with him and J. Edgar Hoover. Where do people in the United States flee to oh, in 2021? There's, there's no place to flee, none. And that's, and that's the realization you have to come to, is it's not just enough to realize things are happening now, then a few years will seem obvious. You got to realize there's nowhere to flee to. There is no place to go. There's no boat to get onto. Where the hell are you going to go? It's here. It's here. It's here. And that's, to me, that's what you have to wake up to. So the most you can do now is you can't just go, oh, you know what? I guess the brown shirts are real time to skedaddle. No, you, you, you have to stand up now and you have to do it in your own way. And my way is it's the podcast and interviewing people and talking about history and talking about censorship and all that good stuff. Other people, it's joining their local school boards. Other people, it's X, Y, Z. But that's the, it's not just enough to realize, hey, you know, maybe it's like Nazi Germany and we're seeing some writing on the wall. The difference is, is they got to jump ship. You know, if your plane's on fire, you can jump out with your parachute. The parachute, your plane is Germany. Your parachute is an American flag. What happens when your parachute's on fire? You, you, you're, you're 10 miles over a bunch of rock. Find out how to repair the parachute. So we are in a very similar but very different situation. There's nowhere to flee to. But I recommend the, the Einstein series, or at least I, I can totally recommend the first one, because what is, is it called normalcy bias? Where, where you just can't see things that are... Yeah. Yeah, are, are, are just so big, but they're out, outside of your realm of even processing it, which is what Einstein was going through. Yeah. Yeah, it's where you don't want to realize. It's like, you know, it's it's like the signs of like an unfaithful partner or something. 
And it's not until years later and years after the fact that you're like, oh, yeah, it was right there. But you don't want to see it. And it's, you know, because you're protecting, your mind's protecting you. You built this life with someone. You don't want to, you know, destroy it. But even there, you eventually can realize it. And what's the saying? Well, there's plenty of other fish in the sea. Well, we're back at the United States. There are no other fish in the sea. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like what we talked about earlier. You're going to push this spot into a desperate area without an outlet, right? The, the air in the plastic bag. If there's nowhere else to flee to, then you have the United States and you're going to have people that feel desperate start acting in a desperate manner. And the difference between here and every other place where eventually you flee is everybody here is armed to the teeth. And that is the foresight of the Second Amendment. That's the only difference, and that's really the only hope I have. But... All right, my hope is, you've heard of a preference cascade? Mm-hmm. In, let's see what country it was, Ceausescu and Romania. Ceausescu, the dictator of Romania, pretty much had the whole population convinced that that everybody loved Ceausescu. Well, in fact, everybody hated him, but nobody dared express it. But once one person was was public about, yeah, this guy's a dictator and he needs to go, the whole country rose up. But it wasn't until until somebody was brave enough to say, hey, this this is just intolerable, that they realized that they weren't alone. And it's technically, technically, I don't know if, it is called a preference cascade where loads of people are feeling the same way, but they think they're alone. Yeah. Well, I, I bet we're getting close to a preference cascade where people just think, Hey, this is intolerable. No, I think that's exactly what it is. It's coming to that point where it's just underneath the surface. Howard Bloom explains it as like a, a super saturation point. Like you can, yeah. you can dissolve salt in like, like an acid solution or something and then you know, put it in like a clear glass beaker drop the salt in and it seemingly disappears and you drop more in and it disappears and it just kind of seems like a black hole you keep dumping it in and it poof, turns clear and goes away but you do get to a certain point where if you add one more milligram of salt it hits a super saturation point and all of a sudden the entire beaker will turn into just a crystal of salt it'll just poof, just appear and you're like, where the hell did that come from? Well, I've been building up the whole time, and then it just finally tipped, and the whole thing solidifies. I can only imagine that's what's happening. Is I think we're getting awful close because yeah, I, I get to travel. I, I mean, I may not if this if this Omicron thing continues. But recently, I've I've been in like four of the Midwestern states. I've been in. Dallas, I've been in, sorry, I've been in Texas, I've been in Arizona, New Hampshire, New York, and yeah, there are an awful lot of people who are really upset. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's coming to a point, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually very confident it's coming to a point, and I think despite perhaps all evidence to the contrary, I'm very optimistic for the future. I just, I think it's bad. I, I just think, I don't know. I see too much, I see in my own experiences, I see too much writing on the wall that says 
good will come out of this. And I don't know if I can necessarily quantify it or define it or put it in a bullet point list, but just something in my, my gut, something in my heart. And who knows, maybe it's just my brain protecting me from the inevitable downfall, but it always makes me think of the general Mattis quote, intuition is subconscious pattern recognition, nothing more, nothing less. Wow. That's well, I'm feeling more optimistic today than I was maybe four months ago. Oh, yeah. Mainly because of, because of my traveling around and talking with people who feel passionately. Yeah. The more people you talk to, you start to realize, you're like, oh, the Internet's not real. You have, you have no idea how many of these things are bots. And you go on this forum and everyone's, you're like, oh, I guess everyone agrees with this. And then you go talk to anyone, a real human at a store or the gym and you're like, you're like, hold on. No one is on board with this. No one is on board with this. You find a couple morons out there who are like, we just need 11 more boosters. We're almost there guys. And it's like, all right, well, you know, bless their heart. Let them go. But like, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, they're making, we'll wrap this one up in a, in a, want to do four more minutes and we can end it at five thirty. Sure. You, it almost, if you're more in control, you don't need to make desperate moves, right? You can just, when you, when you have the power, you can just sit behind the scenes and make very slow moves, right? Versus when you're running out of power, you have to start exhausting your secret weapons faster and faster and faster. The fact that they're overtly for, you know, what we've gone on year, two years now, whack-a-mole with censorship. The fact that, the fact that first they turned the comments off the White House YouTube channel, and then they, and then they started turning them off on all the big pharmaceutical YouTube channels. And then finally, like a week ago, they, they got rid of like the dislike button. It's these ups. If you were really in control, if you had a true grip on the world and this whole kind of COVID facade was falling apart, if you were truly powerful, COVID, that would just be one of your weapons in your arsenal. And you'd be like, all right, this one didn't work. But the fact that they're crunching down harder and harder, you know, no comments, no dislikes. You can't post this. We're banning you from YouTube. That's censorship. You, that's a white supremacist. It's, it's, it's horse paced. It's the fact that they're like banging more and more and it's, if you were truly in charge, like you wouldn't need to do that. You would sit back and kind of watch it, analyze it and be like, all right, we'll, we'll try a different thing. But the fact that they're doubling down, tripling down. That it's just so overt. So they don't unmistakable. And they don't like being overt. The true power likes to like reside behind the surface, right? It's proxy wars. It's we'll fund these people in Vietnam and they'll fund these people. The true overtness is like, you know, proxy wars is like Korea in like the 50s or Vietnam or South America where we're funding this side and the Soviets are funding this side. When they move out of the shadows into the overt public is when you know shit's hitting the fan. You could say that's the Cuban Missile Crisis where it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, little proxies. It was no U.S. embargo with Russian ships, the whole world there. And it's because that was the tippy top. There was nothing else above there. The facade was falling. There was no more 
we got tanks here, or it's like, no, there are nuclear weapons here, that there is nothing more. This is the highest stake. And that's when it came out of the shadows. That's what I think what's happening right now. The fact that they're having to utilize these things that on a human level, we are also viscerally against censorship, character assassination, uh, you know, where are your papers? You can't come into the Walmart if you don't have whatever. The fact that they have to start using these cards shows that they're desperate. When when you're in a contract negotiation and the other, and you're like, eh, I'm not interested. When the other side starts going, well, how, how much do you want to stay? You know, you always hear the stories of like the company that's like, name your salary and that's what we want. You know, that's the desperation versus if you're in the position of control and you're trying to get someone to come on board your company and they don't want to, you just let them go. You know, maybe we'll follow up in a year and just, and maybe they don't come with us and that's fine because we're in control versus when it's like, you know, CK sphere. When he was like, I want twice as many rubles next month. CIA was like, yeah, we'll write the check. What do you want? Cause that was our guy on the inside getting looked down, shoot down radar. There was no, so when the when the moves become more desperate, it's it's either a good or a terrible. It's weakness. It's, I'm gonna go. For, I'm gonna go yeah. with that. It's weakness. It's it's what well, the very because because it's not among other things. It's not persuasive telling people that that they're they're stupid or or whatever. Like on on the vaccines, if I was trying to persuade somebody to take a vaccine, I don't think that I'd tell them. You're stupid. You're uneducated. You're, it's, it's, it's not the way. No, you'd, you'd be very, you'd be very, you know, the United States is in control in the Cold War. We don't need a, we don't need a force you to stay here. We know the defectors are going to come because we're, when you start, you're an idiot. You're not a scientist. The science is settled. Censor all these doctors. Only have these ones. Turn off the comments. No dislikes. You are, and but now that can be a good or a bad thing. It means we're either come, either way, we're coming to the end of something, and it's either good because the evil powers are about to fall, or it's bad because they're about to lash out. We but, live in interesting times. It's can't say it's boring. That's for sure. The the ride is interesting. Whoever designed this this <laughs> ride of life, I give them an A, five stars. It's a fascinating. Tell ride. me. I, I want to have a date with you exactly one year from now, and we sort of look back on on what was said today. I will let me put it in my calendar right now. Because I'm perfectly prepared to learn that everything I said was wacko. Yeah, I'm fine with that. On the other hand, what if I'm not? I mean, sorry, what if what I've said is not wacko? Yeah, it's a perfect fitting end for this podcast because I emailed david hoffman to talk about his book on like november i think 20th of last year and he said email me in a year so i emailed him a year to the day no i think i emailed him a year to the day and it was november 13th and he was like yeah you followed up so we ended up doing the podcast a week later uh, so uh. i will i'm not kidding when i say i'll put it in my calendar right now and it will be here before you know it November. Okay, but I want to see you in between as well. Oh, of course, yeah. But we'll do. Otherwise, I'll have a tantrum. We'll do a we'll do a follow up to this specific episode. So Sunday, November twenty seventh, twenty twenty two, Mitzi Purdue. We'll do it at the exact same time, four p.m. Eastern, and it will. I'll put it in a note, 
it is a follow-up to episode 628. It's in the calendar. So many questions will be answered by then. Like, was Omicron just eh, the scare of the day? Or was it really big? Yeah, it's, it's, we'll either look back and realize just how wrong we were about everything, for either better or worse. Or we'll be doing a podcast together in a bunker because the world's over and uh, there'll be no one to broadcast to. Or we'll be, we'll be writing it down on parchment paper because electronics <laughs> don't exist anymore. Or we'll look back and jokingly be like, what? Oh, yeah, no, that was, that was stupid. Which I uh, yeah, we were nuts. We were just yeah off the rails. Yeah, it's yeah. I hope it's I hope it's and I do. Think I, I I yearn to be wrong. I think things will be better. I, as you said, I mean, you go back six months ago on episodes of this podcast, and you can see how much darker it felt versus whole, little bits of light are starting to punch through. Very tiny, very slowly, but I think that will continue. So I'm going to go with a great awakening. Hell yeah. This is why I love you, Mitzi. Well, I adore you. I, I, and for the world to know, I'm your honorary grandmother. Yes, you are. The world does need to know that you are my honorary grandmother. And I'm I'm honored that uh, I'm your podcast companion. There's there's like there's like one, because I listen to audiobooks. The only other like podcast I listen to for like fun is Tim Dillon, who's just this fat gay comedian. I think he's the funniest guy in the world. No education from his, I learned nothing, but he and his co-host, who's another fat comedian named Ray Kump, there's a speech impediment, and there's just this kind of, they're, they're just this circus, but and I, I just, I think they're the f- two funniest people to have ever got together on a mic. I learned nothing. There's no intellectual value to take away from it, which is why I only listen to it after I've listened to some audiobooks. but I listen to them every evening and they've become like my companion. So, if I am your companion, that's the greatest honor to me because you got it. You I got it. In this life, Mitzi Ooh. Purdue. I will put all of your your websites, your books. I'll put all of it in the description as always. And um, thank you very much for coming on here. It was my joy. I love you, Mitzi. I adore you. Oh, stop it! Take care, everybody. <laughs> Godspeed. Stay safe. God bless America. Recording stopped. Bye bye.